Hey there, this is Cassidy, and you're listening to Cassidy is Alive. In this, the 11th episode of the podcast, we're going to be learning all about my favorite manga, and also anime, I suppose, because those two things are kind of tied. We're going to be learning about that, my favorite manga. We're also going to be learning about one of my all-time favorite genres of music, emo. It's a fun show this week, guys. We'll be back with you right after this intro. So here is Floating Roach. We are dead! Hey, well, it has been a week, huh? <laughs> How you guys doing? Welcome to Cassidy is Live. If I sound a little frustrated, it's because I've had to record this like five or six times, and I'm just, uh, you know. Uh. <laughs> How are you doing, lovelies? Oh my god, this has been pretty uh kind of weak, you know? I'll get into it. I'll get into it. I got that new little segment complete with a shitty little makeshift sh- song. <laughs> speaking for speaking of songs, just first. Speaking of songs, how about that intro song, I'd Rather by Floating Roach? Are you guys sick of it yet? It's been 11 weeks now and I still have no inkling of changing it, but it just sort of occurred to me that, you know, that's, that's a very niche punk band from a little part of Melbourne, right? That, like, existed for a couple of years, only a few people saw them, and at this point in history, I'm the only person that even really cares about the group anymore. So, to me, it's just like, uh, here's this song that I've known for years that I used to see played live all the fucking time, and that can be the intro to my podcast, because it starts off so, like, it's it's really cool, but then it's like, well, it sounds good to me, right? <laughs> Are you guys sick of it? Uh, all eight of you that watched the Mario episode, sick of it? <laughs> My eight weekly listeners that get about ten minutes in until they're sick of hearing me rants. <laughs> I'd like to say I do it for you, but really, who am I kidding? I do it for me. <laughs> I sit here pulling research, recording a podcast, and the intro is a shitty song by Floating Roach, a band that nobody apart from me and fucking... The, the singer Mark Roach have ever heard of. And I'm I'm sure Mark Roach isn't even sure that he was actually in Floating Roach at this point. So, whatever. I do all of this and put it all together just for me so I can look at it at the end of the day and say, you know what? I did that. That's something that I made. I was productive this week. And for 11 weeks, to varying degrees, I have, le- I have at least been a little productive, because at least I'm working towards a podcast (laughs) every week. Something else. Oh my god, I've already recorded the little weekly, um, bit, 
you know, how I have the little song, the lead into it. I did it last week. You, you get what I mean. I've already done the little weekly segment, but something else has happened in that time that I'm just going to throw out here. So I was listening to the Procrastinators podcast. That's the podcast that, well, you, you, you know the character, the fucking samurai. That's the podcast where he originated. Well, really, he originated in a group chat, but regardless, I was listening to the Procrastinators podcast. They did episode 250. They got to the voicemails. They did the samurai voicemail. It was funny. I had a bit of a lull. And Ben Saint mentioned me. Ben Saint, the samurai trader. Notorious. What's that picture where he's, he's, he's eating boner pills? That's the picture that I'm going to put up. <laughs> Ben Saint. This bleeding heart liberal cuck, talking about Ben Saint, not myself, <laughs> he mentioned me. He mentioned the, the samurai compilation I made, mentioned it was uploaded by Cassidy, and it made me feel really good, because I got, like, sudden traffic at some point last week, around what would have been Monday, Tuesday for me, and I think that was when Ben retweeted the compilation I made, and I'm just wondering, well, where's all this fucking traffic coming from, from Twitter, wait, what the fuck happened on Twitter, then I thought about, yeah, it was probably Ben Saint, because the traffic for the Samurai video, exponential growth, right, <laughs> it went from, like, 70 or something to, like, 200 views, whatever, which is so small, but whatever, it's, it's exponential growth, it, like, doubled, and then tripled, and then quadrupled, I can't do maths, <laughs> it grew, a lot in a matter of days, and I'm just like, where the fuck did that come from? Then I listened to the Procrastinators podcast, and there it is, Ben Saint name-dropping me, and saying that he retweeted it. So, that aired a couple of days ago, at the time of recording, so I don't know if there's gonna be any more growth from there. I don't really, I'm not expecting it, and it's like, if it happens or if it doesn't happen, I don't know how concerned I am either way. Because if I, I mean, let's just, quickly, if I wanted to grow this podcast, Cassidy is Alive, and like, you know, do it like a brand, you, you get what I'm saying, like, build, like, if I wanted to identify this as a brand, and then try to grow that brand, I, I know, I have some ways to do that, I suppose, there are some avenues I could take, I just haven't. And because I don't really care about it right now, but maybe I should. At this point, I'm pulling a lot of research every single week. I'm putting in so much effort. Maybe I should start taking this a little more seriously. Maybe I should get a better microphone <laughs> to record this. But nonetheless, I have an incoming call that I just missed. I gotta go answer that. And no better time, because it's time to get into my week this week. All of you listen up! My week. You know, you know, I don't know why I chose this weird Tony Schiavone and Eddie Kingston thing. All these weird clips that I've sort of put together for this little musical buffer. Most would have just chosen bare-naked ladies. You know, the, it's been one week, that. But I chose... 
Tony Schiavone. Fucking hell. It's just like me. Anyway, a week in the life. First, an update. COVID five-day lockdown. I mentioned last week that there was a small outbreak in my home state of Victoria. What I did not mention is that it was the, the purported, not reported, the purported mutant COVID variant originating in the UK, which, at least at the time of recording, was a situation that I was unfamiliar with. The mutations, that is. I do have somewhat of a better understanding now, and yes, accuracy of reports notwithstanding, that is something that I probably should have mentioned. Hindsight, of course, being 2020. Of this brief lockdown, everything more or less came up Millhouse. The major metropolitan areas all mostly adhered to the rules, though where I live near 45-ish kilometers out from Melbourne, a lot of folk weren't quite as adherent, and it's disappointing. During the period, I'm pretty sure on day three, I really needed bread, so beyond my best judgment, I put on my mask, and I left my house to get bread, and what did you know, the supermarket was fucking packed. I walked past a few people on my way there, and they weren't wearing masks. Ugh. Victoria got through it though. The minor outbreak did not become a serious problem. Of course, as of the time of this recording, I have no ability to see into the future. But if there is an outbreak in my area, I could certainly make an educated guess. I'm going to talk a little about the Nintendo Direct. But, um... You know, on second thought, I'll end the segment on that note. Cool. So, money. I'm alright, Jack. Keep your hands off of my stack. That's Pink Floyd. Earlier this week, versus money was a fucking blood sport. Spotify charged me on two accounts for one full year on both. So it's about $12 a month. I was charged $270. Now, it was no matter at all to get a refund. But there's processing time. In an instant, a system error can see me $270 short. But to have that rectified takes time. As I record this, I'm still fucking waiting. Doubtless, no longer by when it is published, fingers crossed, but still, five plus working days later. What the fuck? I needed nicotine. $270 is not a wealth of money, but I'm a broke ass bitch. <laughs> okay? That's a fair amount of money in my world. <sighs> but in other news, there's a possum that lives half in a tree that's in my backyard and half on my fucking roof. Every now and then, I hear it run across my roof. That now and then eventually became often, and that often 
became frequently. And now that frequently is every fucking night. This fucking possum. We basically have a parasocial relationship now. Yeah. Pick any number of celebrities or public figures. The ones that really piss you off by virtue of them just fucking existing. They don't know that you're alive, but you are hyper aware of them. Oh my god, that's where I'm at with this shitty fucking possum. I want it to go away. We are a literal stone's throw away from this huge reserve with these giant trees fucking everywhere. I live in a fucking, I live on what's called the border, right? I forget its actual name, but it's basically where I live is, it, it is the line that divides rural from metropolis, right? I live in that, right on that borderline. There are trees fucking everywhere, but this fucking possum chooses my roof. None of these fucking trees, it doesn't choose any of this vast fucking open land where we live. No, this possum chooses my roof and it's fucking pissing me off. It's been pissing me off for like two and a half years at this point. But that's enough about that fucking possum. That's enough about the possum. I'm sorry. Oh my god, I hate that possum. Nintendo Direct, right? Let's just fucking get into this Nintendo Direct. It was the first Nintendo Direct since September 2019. And it was so, so overall. It was nice to have the Direct back. The content, though, meh. There was some cool stuff. Things that I liked. That's what we'll talk about. Saiken Densetsu 4. That's the Legend of Mana. Soft remaster of that game coming in June. I did play this a little. I'm way more familiar with the first three Saiken Densetsu games. But I will for sure be picking this up. I wonder if it's getting a physical actually. I don't know. I hope so. Square Enix do such good shit on the Switch. They really do. I was hoping for something Dragon Quest related. Unfortunately not. But they did showcase something else. They called it Project Triangle Strategy. It's a tactical RPG with a similar visual design to Octopath Traveler. Which is a game that I loved. Octopath is great. This looked very, very similar to Final Fantasy Tactics Advanced course on the Game Boy Advance in a couple of ways. Combat, obviously, but also these branching story paths. Clearly, this game's going to be far grander in design and scope in that way. There's an early demo that's currently on the eShop that I will check out. I just haven't yet, I suppose. It just, it looks really good. Yeah, I'm really into this game. It's slated for release in 2020. Uh, sorry, 2022. I think I did that last year, 2022. Hades. It's a very popular roguelite game. It's getting a physical release, which I will probably pick up eventually. I don't know when, but eventually, whenever I have the money to spend. I didn't buy Hades. A lot of people do hype it up. They do really like this game. I just, I haven't played it yet because I'm thinking, well, this is really popular. It'll get a physical release, even if it's through limited run. I'll buy it then. I don't want to double dip. I'm not expecting to like it that much. Um, what are you, Fall Guys? Fall Guys is coming to Switch. 
and I've really wanted to play that, so hell yes, I'm gonna play Fall Guys. But the big one, the big one, and I'm not talking about Splatoon 3, that's whatever, I'll, I'll play Splatoon 3. The big one, of course, Skyward Sword HD, more Zelda, is necessarily a good thing. And now, we can finally play this game without motion controls. And that, let me tell you, let me tell you, babe, that is fucking fantastic. Motion controlled sword, it has been remapped to the right analog stick. And that is exactly what I always thought would be the best possible alternative. You can still play with the motion controls if you'd like to, for whatever the fucking reason you might want to. Fuck that. Fuck that. I'm just gonna play with, this, with the controller. I am so hyped for Skyward Sword HD. I really hope we get Wind Waker HD, and especially Twilight Princess coming to Switch as well. But Skyward Sword, yes. And that's all I really cared for in the Direct, as well as my week. And, oh, sorry, I have to. One last thing. Samurai Summer. This is your acknowledgement. You do, in fact, exist. And my top viewed video on my entire channel, by well more than half, is the compilation of your stupid calls to the Procrastinators podcast. You exist. You have been acknowledged on my fucking podcast. Now leave me alone Go bother Ben Saint instead. Okay? Alright, Samurai. The last noteworthy thing that happened this week was a construction of a playlist. It's on Spotify, and I called it Emo Dork Playlist. About four hours of dorky emo bands like The Promise Ring and Captain Jazz, and of course, the Get Up Kids. I love that melodramatic bullshit. I don't know why. Maybe it's just the nature of a few things in Coalescence. Emo, which originally was short for emotive hardcore, or emotional hardcore, dependent on which particular scene, is poetic punk rock. Either more mellow or more aggressive, really... It, it depends what the emotional peak and emotional valleys of the particular song are. Prior to emo, punk was really just anger, protest, counterculture, and whatever substance it had would more often be found in punk-inspired acts, like Patti Smith, like Wire, uh, anything that The Clash put out starting from London Calling. Artistic merit was really hard to come by in real punk rock. Of course, by design. You certainly weren't finding the next Edgar Allan Poe in the early 80s hardcore punk scene. With apologies to Henry Rollins. That was, however, until 1984. This is a song from the 80s. Washington, D.C., early mid-1980s, a hardcore punk scene notable for outrageous and violent live shows, criminality, every band looking and sounding basically the same, 
grown complacent and grown disenfranchised from the scene, a 19-year-old punk rocker named Guy Picciotto formed the band Rites of Spring. This was his answer to the cookie-cutter punk scene. Rites of Spring were immediately distinguishable from their contemporaries, with more dynamic and melodic guitar work, self-introspective lyricism, and song structures that shared as much in common with progressive rock as they did with traditional punk. Though short-lived, Rites of Spring were very influential and quick. They attracted the attention of former Minor Threat vocalist and God himself, Ian McKay, who not only worked with the group, but formed his own imitation, a band by the name of Embrace, along with a few other groups that took influence by the mold that was broken by Rites of Spring, another noteworthy one would probably be Dag Nasty. The DC punk scene entered the summer of 1985. This has been come has come to be known as the Revolution Summer. This was a major shift, a turning point at almost a cultural level. You see, the DC scene was emblematic of a large issue in punk as a subculture, public perception. Extrapolate from DC, punks were viewed as violent, racist, sexist, delinquent, petty criminals. And in those early 80s, that wasn't far from the truth in Washington. The Revolution Summer was both a social and musical movement, as, as public perception of punk rock fans lightened, the music really diversified. It was a process that continued throughout the remainder of the 80s, but it got its head start in Washington, D.C. in 1985. Neither Rites of Spring or Embraced would last very long at all, and by 1986, both bands were completely defunct, and Picciotto and McKay had co-found one of my favorite bands, Fugazi. Now, what you need to know about Fugazi, they're not really emo. They're not considered to be emo. But they were fucking influential. Very influential to punk rock across the board. Any punk at all that has shown up post-1990 is in some way derivative of Fugazi. Like, across the board. I, I am uncertain how deliberate this is, but as for these groups in the early second wave of emo that we're about to discuss, they were all directly inspired by Fugazi, or at the very least, directly inspired by a band that was directly inspired by Fugazi. Fugazi are an important band to make note of, if only for that reason. There were a number of bands across the US between the summer of 85 and the preceding period, sorry, the following period, but they're all largely forgotten, so we're pressing on. Seattle, the other Washington. It was during the alternative rock boom, when bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam had entered the mainstream, and MTV had seen a revival through heavier and more aggressive in-your-face music. There came a band that took the conventions of emocore, the aesthetic of grunge, and all that doom and gloom from emergent indie rock, truly personifying emo in the image that is still being replicated to this day. This band was Sunny Day Real Estate, and in 1994, they released their debut album, Diary, 
the touchstone of emo's second wave, and more or less what modern revivalist bands today each attempt to replicate. Diary is considered the missing link between early post-hardcore and the modern emo subgenre. This fucking album, I would argue, is where it all began proper. Diary is a masterpiece, among my favourite all-time records. We will discuss a few more, but this is the album to listen to from today, and the one that I most highly recommend. Diary was a malleable take on what was DC's emotive hardcore sound, unconventional songwriting and chugging bass lines were retained, but most everything else saw a departure. Guitar parts were cyclical, similar to, uh, we'll say standard rock, although the quality was closer to a mellowed, cathartic grunge. It, it carried a quality that was, I guess, lethargic. It was as lethargic as it was bittersweet with very confessional lyrics that told of inner turmoil. Vocals, too, were often melodic and very emotive, almost bipolar, with frantic, just manic highs and the most utterly depressing of lows. The trademark of Diary's vocals was that they were often deliberately out of key. They were aharmonic. All of these things created something unique, what I can only describe as melodic dissonance. Equal parts chaos and order. Music truly reflective of the human spirit engaged in conflict with itself. Seriously, go out of your way to listen to this album. Sunny Day Real Estate and Diary set the standard. The key features, cliches, and general vibe of emo from then on. Despite Seattle's locale on a map, this second wave of emo would become Midwest emo. That's what it would be called. Not all of the notable bands were from the Midwestern United States, but that was the epicenter of the movement. That's really where the vast majority were from. It's where the sound really developed. If I had to choose, I'm not going to, but if I were or someone pressed, pressed a gun to my head and made me choose my favorite subgenre of music, right? Like, the guns to my head, like, you tell me your favorite subgenre of music or I'm gonna blow your brains out. It would probably be Midwest emo. At the very least, it's my favorite time slash place in music. Emo evolved further, but this is where we're staying for the day. At Midwest. Midwest emo. Let's look at a few more noteworthy records, shall we? 1995. Exact date unknown. Chicago-based emo band Captain Jazz released their one and only album, the Schmappen Schmaz LP. A fan-given name. Its full title, <clears throat> Burritos, Inspiration Point, Fork Balloon Sports, Cards in the Spokes, Automatic Biographies, Kites, Kung Fu, Trophies, Banana Peels We've Slipped On, and Eggshells We've Tippy-Toed Over. So, yeah. Schmap and Schmaz. <laughs> this album was, and even more so today, is a cult hit. 
one of those majorly influential pieces that only came to light as majorly influential with the benefit of hindsight. Kind of like how 18 Visions basically created Deathcore, then they basically created Metalcore, then, unfortunately, they basically created Mansoncore, but nobody noticed for like 15 plus years, like that kind of situation. Schmapp and Schmaz took what Sunny Day Real Estate had created and connected it back to hardcore punk. This record still had the emotional lows, but those highs were absolute mania. Taking influence from the Pixies, we have very quick shifts between the two here. Pure Chaos, Tempo Shift, Mallow. This may have been the genesis of the cliched emo breakdown, most certainly its first popular usage. In hardcore, a breakdown is typically categorized by an increased beats per minute. It's when the track ramps up to enter its climax, the most intense, aggressive part of the song. An emo breakdown kind of does the opposite. It doesn't necessarily ramp up. It winds down, collapses, deconstructs, mellows. It may very well from there play out like a traditional hardcore breakdown, or it may collapse further. Whatever, the key piece is that winding down. The musical breakdown serving as an emotional breakdown, so to speak. Along with reconnecting this new emo sound back to its post-hardcore roots, Captain Jazz introduced the trademark emo breakdown. This is another excellent record, far less accessible than Diary, and it is long out of print, but I mean, this is considered one of the seminal releases in the Midwest emo subgenre. In 1996, there was Christie Front Drive and their self-titled LP, which is sometimes referred to as Stereo. I often refer to this album as Stereo. This one is melancholic as all hell. Very passionate vocal delivery, atop almost math-inspired instrumentation. It creates a very cold and lonely ambiance. Sad, lovelorn, cathartic music that the casual listener just might appreciate. Christy Front Drive kind of created their own distinct style of emo, and bred, in my opinion, what would become emo pop. The the even farther removed subgenre that gave us stuff like American Football and Dashboard Confessional and my favorite, the Appleseed cast. This album proved that lack of musical diversity was a total non-issue for the genre. The arguable landmark, or at least an arguable landmark release of 1997 was Nothing Feels Good by the Milwaukee-based band The Promise Ring. This is when Midwest emo begins to show a number of similar qualities to early 2000s pop punk, and there's a good reason for that. This is a repetitive album, and it fucking loves the conventional verse-chorus three-minute song structure. Sure, it's emotional, sentimental, bittersweet, it's definitely authentic as emo ought to be, 
this is a good album. What I'm saying is that it has a certain anthemic energy. It is celebratory of popular music. Radio-friendly emo. Blink-182 would completely fucking steal this idea and basically created the still-imitated shape of mainstream punk. With their 1998 shit show, Enema of the State. Those sons of bitches. Nothing Feels Good was not directly influential to the evolving emo sound, though it is a celebrated album today. What it was, however, was ahead of its time. It's an album from 1997 that sounds more like a contemporary to bands like Mayday Parade or even early Taking Back Sunday. It's really good shit. The really influential album from 97 was, though, The Get Up Kids, with their debut LP, 4-Minute Mile. Take everything, absolutely everything that I just said about Nothing Feels Good, and reapply it to four overly sensitive freshman year dorks, and all of their girlfriends just left them. Maybe these guys are also in the chess club, play a bit of D&D, you know? <laughs> the Get Up Kids was maybe the new personification of emo. I guess, thereabouts, what it is today. Sans the fringe and the whole morbid. Uh, you know, the modern idea of morbid as explicitly depressive, that wasn't a thing just yet, but that high school dork from the suburbs became synonymous with emo upon the release of this record. Hugely influential. This is the favorite album of, um, Fallout Boy Guy. I forget his name. The, um, the side fringe guy with the black fucking eyeshadow. He always looked fucking ridiculous. Pete Wentz. It's that man's favorite album. Why he claims to have pursued music. The, uh, the Farrow Brothers, who are in Paramore, they also cite this album slash band as an influence. And you can really hear that on All We Know. I'm sure that Hayley Williams also really likes this band. Um, recently... Ring of Honor's Matt Taven, former Ring of Honor world champion, told me that the Get Up Kids are his favorite band. Like myself though, Taven's favorite Get Up Kids album is the 1999 follow-up to this, Something to Write Home About, which itself was also a pretty big deal. Speaking of 1999, that year, an Arizona-based band quietly released what was their third album. This band, Jimmy Eat World. Now a very, very popular group. They got a taste of their mainstream, of the mainstream, sorry. They got a taste of the mainstream with the release of this album, Clarity. This is definitely my personal favorite from Jimmy Eat World. I think that this is a fucking masterpiece. However, that's not what I'll be discussing. In 2001, they released their follow-up to this, their fourth album entitled Bleed American. In particular, the single, The Middle, 
which received significant airplay at a mainstream level internationally. You could turn on the radio in Australia, any channel basically, apart from the ones that specifically play old stuff, I suppose, or talk back, whatever. Just turn on your FM radio, probably hear this song a couple of times throughout the day, right? This, this was Emo's commercial peak, right? At the time, this was Emo's commercial peak. It thrust the term into the zeitgeist, where, as all things do, it inevitably was bastardized. Ironically, however, the middle was the antithesis of emo lyrically. It was about swallowing pride and not becoming overly emotional about petty things, because it'll all work itself out in the end. It's a message that I can surely get behind, but at the same time, I mean, <laughs> what the fuck? So then, where comes, where from comes this weird idea of the depressive emo, the sad boy. Maybe from here, My Chemical Romance. This part of the story ends in 2002, when the story of My Chemical Romance is yet to begin. Midwest emo died as emo was repersonified yet again upon the release of Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge in 2004. Cliff Notes version of that story, but whatever. That was MCR's second album. I want to give mention, however, to their first album, 2002's I Brought You My Bullets, You Brought Me Your Love. Before cycling back, this is the last that I'll be talking about briefly today. This, in my opinion, was the end of Midwest Emo, the end of the full second wave of Emo. This was the last major release in that genre. It's basically, I would say, Get Up Kids meets Cap'n Jazz, but with a certain raw quality to it, an authenticity that bleeds through the speakers. It is an inspired record in a way very similar to Sunny Day Real Estate's Diary was eight years prior. It it takes what was pre-established, and with it, kind of reveals something new. Just as Diary was the same, yet different, to the DC bands that inspired it, MCR took what had been done by other bands discussed today, and created I Give You My Bullets. The same, yet completely different. It is the missing link between the Midwest sound and what came after. And thus, the story of Midwest emo sort of comes full circle. See, Diary did the same thing. That bridged the gap between emo, the original, the first first of the emo music, and what would become Midwest emo. It was that, it was, it was that bridge, that bridge over the, those two blocks of land. This album here is the bridge over two other blocks of land. So, in a really weird way, it sort of connect, all connects and comes full circle there with MCR. I know a lot of people really don't like MCR. I really do have a soft soft spot for them. Starting with the Black Parade, I don't really give a shit. I like the stuff before then, especially this album. But yeah, this, in my opinion, is the final major release in Midwest Emo. Bonus acknowledgements, however, 
go to a couple of more recent Midwest revivalist bands. In recent years, the, there's sort of been a reemergence of that style of music, as, as I think more young people are discovering it, doubtless through the internet. We have bands like You Blew It are very good. A newer band that just popped up last year, Dogleg, really good. Of course, Press Club from Australia, making, uh, I'd still say it's Midwest. Um, and I Wish I Could Skateboard are a brilliant band I think you should check out. I mean, what a fucking time to be alive. My favorite period of music is being recreated. And it's not bad. It's actually not bad. So, we're gonna cycle back now to the late 90s. Cue the BoJack Horseman song. No. <laughs> so we're cycling back now to the late 90s. Primarily to segue into the song of the week. Because we skipped over a very important band. My personal favorite of the entire genre. A band known as Braid. In their time, Braid were fairly large within the niche. Probably their biggest feat in the 1990s, an overall contribution to emo as a whole, was that their music was subject to some pretty high praise by the music press. But they weren't as popular as the Get Up Kids, they were nowhere near as influential as Captain Jazz. Why Braid are considered so important is found in their 1998 magnum opus, Frame and Canvas. Again, in this situation, hindsight is our best, best friend. Ian Cohen wrote in a 2018 article for Stereo Gum, a retrospective look at this record about 20 years later, that Frame and Canvas is his exhibit A for the spirit and vibrancy of this kind of music. In the two decades following its release, Frame and Canvas has become a go-to example for what Midwest emo is all about. Each year, it climbs higher yet on theoretical top 10 lists, persistently. It's literally the perfect snapshot of an entire subgenre. This is the complete second wave, condensed down to 41 minutes and 50 seconds. As a record, it's fucking phenomenal. Deeply poetic lyrics, each syllable delivered in such a way that is so painstakingly considered with lush, interwoven guitar melodies taking from the best elements of hardcore, pop, and alternative rock, while tempos shift, suggesting emotion rather than speaking it, and the songwriting is very complex. Uncommon time signatures are plenty, with several instances being polyrhythmic. This is just a beautiful, beautiful album by a beautiful band. Really great music, like, just for the music listener, somebody that really appreciates the science of music, this is an album to really check out. This is Braid, uh, fucking great. Really great musicians, really great songwriters. And the song of the week this week is from this album. This song is from Braid's Frame and Canvas, released in 1998. It is entitled Never will come for us. I hope that you enjoy it. When we come back, it's my favorite manga. That's what we're talking about. I'll see you guys then. Slow as 
Here for Dragon Ball Z. Now you can join the quest to collect Dragon Ball Z action figures and authentic trading cards. Seven in all. One in every Burger King. Big kids, million. Hey, guess what? I am a total fucking weeb. And I really like manga. Honestly, I just kind of like comics. But ever since Robert Kirkman killed The Walking Dead, it's pretty much just been manga for me. I'm more touch and go when it comes to anime, but given their very, very close link, I'll talk about some of my favourite manga and anime too. And where better to start than with One Piece, the highest selling, most popular serialised manga of all time, and it's not even close. Created by Ichira Oda, and published in Weekly Shonen Jump starting July 1997 and currently 1,000 plus chapters long. I began reading One Piece in April 2020 and I am so glad that I did. In brief, this is a story about pirates and we follow Monkey D. Luffy. That's his name, along with his colourful crew, the Straw Hat Pirates. In his quest to become the King of Pirates, he finds the ancient treasure, One Piece, and he becomes the King of Pirates. It's the concept. <laughs> and a lot of shit happens. We learn of a global corrupt government, world nobles above them that deal in human slavery, a fucking wealth of removed history, and there's so many slow burn revelations. That's the good shit. Oda-san is a fantastic artist. He's a fantastic writer. He has built such a rich world. And his designs of characters, both inside and out, down to their fucking names, are generally just really awesome. But the long-term storytelling... That is where One Piece shines the best. Like, oh my god. <laughs> my favourite character in One Piece is probably Trafalgar Law. And just looking at him, you can tell he definitely listens to bands such as Braid. I hope you enjoyed that song. I always kind of quite enjoy the anime, to be honest, ever since I watched it. I have enjoyed the anime. As a general rule, from what I understand, the manga fans are kind of lukewarm to the adaptation. And while I agree that the more recent arcs have certainly dragged on screen, I do mostly like the anime, I would say. Another manga that I enjoy is Cardcaptor Sakura. This was a shoujo written by the group Clamp. It originally ran from 96 through 2000, 
my first exposure to it would have been on Australia's Toonami in the early 2000s as a dubbed anime, when I was a wee little bub. In early primary school, a wee little bub. Uh, <laughs> Cardcaptor Sakura follows the titular character Sakura, an inheritant of magical powers, activated by cards. When she accidentally releases these cards into the world, it's up to her to hunt them down and add that new ability to her arsenal. It's a magical girl story, but unlike a lot of shoujo, unlike a lot of magical girl shoujo specifically, which is typically targeted at younger girls, this has found a sizable popularity in a much broader demographic. It's a fairly short manga at about 50 chapters. The anime is actually really good too. It's collected into 12 small volumes, the manga is. I would recommend it. It's very short. You can probably get through it in a couple of weeks if you're reading it regularly. It's probably the best magical girl manga that I've ever had the pleasure to read. The best magical girl anime, though. This is Maho Shoujo Madoka Magica. And it's 12 episodes. Epi it's 12 episodes long. Released in 2011. And it is fucking excellent. This follows four young girls who make supernatural contracts to become magical girls. Their role is to fight witches. And those fights are depicted with these mind-bending, surrealistic visual art. And, oh my god, like, oh my god, that's just... Let me just... If you've watched this and you've seen the witch fights, they're, they're fucking mind-melting. They're crazy. As this series progresses, we see the layers of the magical girl trope be peeled back, becoming a complete deconstruction and kind of a meta-commentary on the genre. It deeply examines the realistic consequences and story beats and cliches of just what what is largely being accepted by audiences as just tropes of the genre. It's just outstanding writing. I love these kind of meta-commentaries on the creative process in of itself, that really peel back the layers and examine what it is we're really watching, the stories we're being exposed to, and the stories that we're telling as writers. I would highly recommend this show as well. As I said, it's 12 episodes long. They're about 20 minutes each. You can watch all of this in a weekend. This is especially the final episode, which will just blow your fucking mind if you watch. And if you watch and enjoy it, the final episode is going to blow your mind. These have also been compiled into two movies, they're not as good. I would still recommend the series. Then there's a third movie that's kind of an epilogue that's... The less said about that, the better. Again, Maho Shoujo Madoka Magica, I would highly recommend. This is really good. Far different from Magical Girls, though, is Hitoshi Iwaki's sci-fi horror manga, Parasite. This is some good shit. This ran from 1988 to 1995 and was actually adapted into a 24-episode anime years and years and years later in 2014. That's what I watched first. I then went back and read the manga, and while I absolutely adored the anime, the manga is out of this world good. It, it usually is, right? <laughs> there are very few examples where the manga isn't better. This is... oh my god. So this centers on an invasion of Earth by alien parasites. They take over people's minds by burrowing into their brains. It's kind of similar to, um, if you ever read Animorphs, I know memes and a lot of people are familiar with what Animorphs really is. If you've read Animorphs, 
you know, very similar, very similar plot. You, you get what I mean about the parasites burrowing into your brains. Our main character, Shinichi Izumi, he wakes during this process, causing the parasite in his body, body to retreat into his right arm, where it gets stuck and remains. So for the rest of the series, he has this fucking parasite just growing out of his right hand. Like, it's fucking crazy. Both Shinichi and the parasite, who he names Migi, that's Japanese word for right, because it's on his right hand, his name's Migi, they both retain their separate intellect and personality. And they do come to a, a mutual understanding that it is to their benefit to work together in order to survive in this post-invasion Earth. Other infected people want to kill him on sight, obviously, and, like, if he dies, then... Miggy dies, his host body's dead, you know? So, it's to their mutual benefit to work together. Through this dynamic, Parasite explores some pretty deep philosophical questions. It's, they often regard humanity, purpose, morality, like, uh, the best way to explain it is just to tell you how these characters develop. So, as these characters co-develop, because they're developing together, the questions, how they're explored are just, mm, Shinichi, he starts growing very uncertain of humanity's feelings in regard to the invasion. They feel, humans feel like they have some kind of moral superiority over this invasive species. When it's really reflected in how humans treat the environment, humans treat the world around them, that we're really no better. Like our factory farming, for example, really no better than what these, these parasites are doing. At the very least, these parasites don't really have a choice in the matter. This is just their life. This is how they live. Whereas for humans, these are things that we've built. So he really, really starts to question humanity in that sense. It's very interesting. Migi, on the other side, he starts to take on more typically human traits. So his race of people are devoid of emotion, devoid of all of that. All they know is infect and that's it. That's their life. They're basic, really simple parasites. But he starts taking on some human traits. He starts showing a fondness for Shinichi. So he starts seeing him as a friend. And eventually he starts, he understands the human will to sacrifice out of kindness. To give, to give something selflessly for somebody that you care about. And this is something completely unique to his species, right? This is something I've never experienced. It, it's a very interesting way of exploring humans, exploring human culture, human interaction, exploring human idealism. And it's all done through an, a big sci-fi body horror invasion <laughs> story. It's, it's very, very interesting. Ignore that this is a Japanese comic, if you will. Parasite is truly outstanding. It's an outstanding piece of contemporary literature with the added benefit of gruesome body horror. And I mean gruesome fucking depictions. It's like the best thing ever. Briefly, I just wanted to give passing mention to two anime series. And I, I could, it's impossible not to mention these. The Space Western Cowboy Bebop. Absolute masterpiece. The best anime show ever made. And the anime adaptation of Death Note. These are two, definitely, maybe even number one and two, if we take out Dragon Ball. 
the most the two most watched and appreciated anime series in the West, especially with people in my age group. There really isn't much that I can add to either, so I'm not going to attempt to. But what I would like to say is that anime or not, these are both great and classic television shows, and you should definitely watch them if you haven't already. Death Note has a very good manga too, by the way. I am... Um, I tend to be, this is one of those rare times where I tend to be more of a fan of the adaptation than the source material, but, I mean, Death Note does have a great manga too. Cowboy Bebop was also based on a very short running manga, but there's no point reading it, it's whatever. This, though, this one, this is Gundam, the Gundam, RX-78-2 Gundam. As first seen over 40 years ago when Mobile Suit Gundam debuted as an anime. Gundam, now, is a huge fucking franchise. It's romanticized as being Jap Japan's answer to Star Wars. Completely ignoring the model kits and the toys, which as I understand make up something like 92% of the, the full-blown toy market in Japan. They're really the backbone of the Gundam franchise. Ignoring that, the franchise spans thousands upon thousands of hours of TV, film, OVAs, as well as a shitload of manga, novels, and video games. It, Gundam's a huge deal. However, I am the only person that I know to have watched all of it. That's right, I've watched all of Gundam. This, it, it's... I'm not ashamed, I swear. <laughs> I haven't read all of it, but I've watched it all. One day, I will dedicate an entire podcast to MS Gundam, covering all of the film media, every last bit of it. For today, it might actually be a series of podcasts. <laughs> For today, however, the original series set in the Universal Century 0079 and focusing on the Xeon Earth War, starring Amaro. I'd like to say that this is my favorite. If you've watched NMRGW, that's Gundam Wing, but not this, watch this, right? It's, it's easy, it's been re-edited into very easily digestible films. It was retold through a series of OVAs, Gundam Origin, they began release in 2015, and the quality of this retelling is excellent. Just I, I do, I always have to highly recommend the original Gundam, because no, not a lot of people have seen it, um, not enough people have seen it. I will talk more about Gundam in a future episode, it may be a long time from now, but I will. We're going to talk more about some of my favourite manga, starting with my favourite mangaka. A mangaka is a manga artist, right? They Typically with manga, it's one guy or a group doing the whole thing writing, art, everything. A mangaka typically refers to when it's one solo artist. For example, Ichiro Oda from One Piece, he does it all by himself. That is a mangaka. My favorite mangaka is a man by the name of Junji Ito. His body of work consists mainly of horror stories. Psychological, in a way, kind of Lovecraftian, a lot of his work consists of what can be described as body horror, mainly for lack of a better term. 
Ito-san is definitely celebrated today, but I can't shake this feeling that this guy will be a Van Gogh generations from now. I see his work being placed on a pedestal above his contemporaries long after he's gone. To understand why, let's look at one of his more popular works, Uzumaki. In this cosmic horror story, a small village is plagued by paranormal events involving spirals. It begins as paranoia, but the nature of the spiral eventually completely overruns the town itself. It causes the entire place to become one large, spiraling, labyrinthine structure. Its citizens themselves have mutated into these twisted spiral shapes. Eventually, we find this to be an unending cyclical curse. The town will constantly be rebuilt upon itself. You see, the shape of the town in a spiral, time flows from the center. So in the dead center, it's a complete standstill. There is no time. As it spirals out, that's how time is flowing. So the town is literally the exact same town with the exact same residence is constantly being built atop itself. The curse itself is the very concept of a fucking spiral. I have never read anything else, even fucking remotely similar to this. Perhaps my favorite work, created by Ido-san, is the Enigma of Amagara Fault. Like a lot of Junji Ido's work, this is a standalone one-shot chapter. Following an earthquake, Amagara Mountain divides, revealing a peculiarity in the rock face. Countless human-shaped holes. Archaeologists and geologists, they have no fucking clue what's going on. All that they can say is that they must have been dug out by somebody thousands of years in the past. This attracts large amounts of people, as you'd probably figure it might, but it's actually not for the reason that you might assume. People aren't coming to Amagara Mountain just to gawk at the holes. They're coming to find their hole, their particular hole. You see, each of these human-sized cavities is perfectly shaped to fit somebody in the world. And we witness people disappearing into these holes. They enter and disappear, one after another. They don't know where these holes lead, but they're compelled to go in. The Enigma of Amagara Fault is a horror story about human compulsion, which is such a unique concept. Ask yourself, honestly, if there appeared a hole that was perfectly shaped to fit your body, would you want to see it? And upon seeing it, would you be compelled to enter it? Despite all common sense and reason telling you not to, could you fight human instinct, curiosity, Let's face it, you would absolutely enter this hole. It was never a choice. The human animal has deep-seated feelings of obligation. It's a fault in our chemistry, really. Needing to touch the paint to ensure that the sign is correct when it claims that the paint is wet. Something that the vast majority are going to do. But take something so simple as that, and apply that logic 
on a far more grandiose and personal scale. In our quest for purpose, perhaps it could be found at the other end of an ancient cavity perfectly shaped to fit our body. Compulsion is a terrifying thing. Junji Ito saw that, and he put it into his work, The Enigma of Amagara Fault. If you really look at Junji Ito's work, we have spirals, compulsion, these basic concepts that have the potentiality to create truly disturbing pieces of psychological horror. In his most popular work, Tomi, Ito-san explores the horror of being alive as opposed to being dead. This man is my favorite mangaka because there is nobody creating anything similar to what he has. Manga or any other form of literature. And like, it's just unbelievable. His work, I believe, will stand the test of time. By the time everything, everything else that I will and have already discussed today has long been forgotten, I would like to think that Junji Ito will be remembered. Of course, another manga and anime that I love is Dragon Ball. This franchise has been covered to fucking death. Right now, I'm in a position, it's, it's a very precarious position, where I can't exactly pass over Dragon Ball when speaking on my favorite manga slash anime. It is one of my all-time favorites, after all. But I'm unsure what I can say exactly about it. Like, like I said, it's been covered to death. There's a huge conversation surrounding Dragon Ball. What can I really add to it? So, in Lewin's speaking about Dragon Ball, or going into the history of Dragon Ball, or the plot of Dragon Ball, or talking about his creator, Akira Toriyama, I figured I would talk about my favorite character in Dragon Ball, Vegeta. Big surprise. The single greatest babyface turn in history. And I say that as a huge pro wrestling fan that has seen many a babyface turn. This is better than anything. Here's the story of Vegeta. Obviously brief. When we first meet Vegeta, he had recently conquered an alien planet with his buddy slash comrade Nappa. They were busy eating the corpses of its former inhabitants that they had completely killed. By the end of Dragon Ball, Vegeta plays a crucial role in literally saving the universe from its imminent destruction. His character development might actually be my favorite in any fiction sans maybe Walter White from Breaking Bad. You know, <laughs> let's talk about this. His entire journey revolves around pride and learning to put his pride aside in the interest of people that he has come to call his friends and yes, his family. When, G when Vegeta was a child, he literally lost everything. His father was killed. His, as far as he knew, his entire civilization was destroyed. His planet was blown up. He lost fucking everything. And again, during the series, he loses everything yet again. He's defeated. He's introduced as a villain. He's defeated. The guy above him's defeated. He loses everything yet again. Suddenly, Vegeta finds himself with his pride shattered and he's stranded on Earth. Surrounded by people that he tried to kill. Some of them he did kill. He's 
unable to compete with Son Goku. He's thrust into a position eventually where he has to fight beside them for self-preservation, basically. Through that, we see Vegeta soften. We see Vegeta father a child with a human. And eventually, he throws it all away when power, the power to finally best Goku, the power to give up all of these mortal human attachments, right? And be the prince of the Saiyan race again, to be the king, Vegeta. That's dangled in front of him and he takes it. He throws everything aside just for that. In a moment that then, a little bit later, climaxes his development as a character, Vegeta sacrifices himself in an attempt to destroy Majin Buu, who was the major villain at that point in the story. His dying thoughts were of his family and of the horribly vicious life that he had lived, all of the innocent people that he killed in his life. It's considered to be the emotional peak of the series, as a once genocidal villain that genuinely enjoyed killing dies the death of a selfless hero. Later on, using the power of the Dragon Balls to have any wish granted, all quote, good-hearted people that were killed during the conflict with Majin Buu are revived, and among them is Vegeta. He's been forgiven by the universe, I suppose. He's, he's considered a good-hearted person at this point. This is obviously a very condensed retelling of that story, the story of Vegeta, but I hope that it's enough to explain why he might be, and probably is, my all-time favorite character in any fiction. Such a beautiful story, how he goes from being this just despicably evil, disgusting, apparently irredeemable bad guy to someone who has found redemption and we love is just phenomenal. It, it's beautiful. Here's another shoujo manga that I absolutely adore. Nana, created by Ai Yazawa. It's a hard name to pronounce. A-I Yazawa. Ai. Whatever. In 2002, this follows two young women who are both named Nana. They move, they, they both individually move to Tokyo's city central, and they become roommates. Nana and Nana. One of them is an inspiring punk rock musician, and the other is just a small town girl living in a lonely world. <laughs> this manga basically just follows the two Nanas as one seeks fortune and fame, and the other one seeks love. There's nothing too remarkable about this at all. It's just very beautifully drawn, and it's exceptionally well written. Recommend giving this a read sometime. This is very good. Very good little slice of life, kind of, just, just that slice of life manga. It's very popular. It was very, very popular. There's an anime that, an anime adaptation that's very popular too. But the last manga that I'm going to talk about today is my long-standing favorite. And one of, if not my absolute favorite thing ever. It's better than sex. Gunmu. Known in English, localized, as Battle Angel Alita. This is a Sinan cyberpunk story. Kind of a post-apocalyptic-ish. Created by Yukito Kishiro. Genius. 
and first published by Shueisha beginning in 1990. This takes place in the distant future, in a place known as Scrapyard. I suppose I should probably explain the Scrapyard. So, the Scrapyard... Yeah, I definitely should. <laughs> the Scrapyard is the dystopian city built on Earth's surface. It's built around a massive scrap heap. It's waste that falls from the sky, from a floating city of supposed, we'll just say nobles, known as Zalem. In some translations, Zalem, the floating city, is also known as heaven. Now, access to Zalem, it's heavily restricted, so people are forced to quite live, quite literally, in its shadow. To deal with this, we have that old cyberpunk trope of transhumanism, transhumanism. you know, a large section of scrapyarders are cyborgs, or mechanically altered to some degree, it's that kind of thing. So, right, so obviously, that kind of thing, transhumanism, being turned into a cyborg, it's going to require some kind of frequent fine-tuning, repairs, that kind of thing. You can't just expect to go on forever. You need to be repaired. Enter this guy, Daisuke Ido. He is a cyborg repairman. That's his line of work. One day, within the scrap heap, he finds a still-living but heavily, heavily damaged cyborg. And using his expertise... He rebuilds the cyborg. She has absolutely no idea who she is, where she came from. Complete amnesiac. So Ido-san gives her a name. Gally. Known in English, for some unbeknownst reason, as Alita. Gunmo follows Gally through this dystopian future. At first, she's what's called a hunter-warrior. Basically a bounty hunter. She soon thereafter becomes a combat sports star. And eventually, which is where the bulk of the series takes place, she becomes an agent of Zalem. So she's working for the mysterious city of Zalem and some benefactor up there that she doesn't know we learn more about. As she learns more of her past, the history and true nature of this world is revealed to us. And Gunmul just keeps getting better and better and better from each successive chapter. When she when she becomes an agent of Zalem, it's from there that just each chapter is just better than the last. It's really something to read, something to behold as it happens. Now, due to health concerns, the original Gunmu was ended in 95 by Yakito Kashiro, with an ending that he was not at all satisfied with. But it did return five years later when he was in better health, with Gun, with Gunmo the Last Order, I almost called it Gum. With Gunmo the Last Order, which ignored the original ending, so it ignored the ending that he threw together just because he thought he'd never get to end it. He completely ignored that and picked up from around the end of Volume Nine, completely ignoring Volume Ten. This manga, though, Gunmo the Last Order, yes, <laughs> yes. This started in 2000, and over the next 14 years, it continued the story as Kishiro-san had intended. The scope of Gunmul's world grows immensely. The complexity of its story, it, it just gets fucking remarkable. Then, then in 2014, the third and final act began. This was called Gunmul Martian War Chronicles, also known as Battle Angel Alita 
Mars Chronicle. This is where everything comes together, and all of the coalescing pieces manage to find themselves tied to the backstory of our main character, Gally. Reading through the entire thing, and finally reaching this point, is one of the most satisfying fucking things I have done in my life. Like, you have no idea. As a whole, the Gunmill series is the perfect cyberpunk story, perfect cyberpunk setting. A lot of the panels, they sort of, they're annotated with deeply scientific explanations of things. Kishiro understands physics very well, and he will explain the ins and outs of everything and how this inconceivable fictional, like, someone will do, like, an attack that seems to make no sense, the way their body's contorting and the velocity they're hitting, and it's like, well, why would you spin to go into that kick? He explains through physics why that actually makes sense, and it checks out scientifically. It's very weird, because this story has a lot of really out there kind of fantastical shit, but it's all scientifically, it just all works in, in real world science. It's really, really weird. At least theoretically, theoretical physics, a lot of it works, which is one of the features of this that does not get spoken of enough. It's science fiction. Science fiction. I love it. So, look, the, the first several volumes of Gunmu, they are a bit slow moving, but it's so worth powering through powering through it to get to what makes Gunmu my absolute favorite work of fiction. A lot of people have been picking this up and reading it more recently. They tend to read the first couple of chapters and sort of like, eh, yeah, whatever. Get through them. That's all I'll say. They're not bad, and I will never say they're bad, but compared to what comes after and how the story progresses, it's just get through it. It's like the first season of Breaking Bad. Get through it. Get to the really, really good shit, right? In 2019, though, the James Cameron-headed Hollywood adaptation was released. Alita Battle Angel. I'm not sure how it did critically. I didn't actually pull that information, because it's not very relevant. I don't really care. It's more... The reason I bring up this movie, and the reason why I say it's how it fared critically doesn't matter, is because this is about me as a longtime fan of Gunmul. I started reading this in 2005, when I was 12 years old. I grew up frequently watching an OVA that was released in 1993. Long, long time fan, basically my whole life. <laughs> as such, here's my opinion on the Hollywood adaptation. I honestly didn't think that Hollywood's Alita was that bad. It wasn't bad. James Cameron, is obviously a big, big fan of this, uh, at least, well, the first manga, you know, the original series, I don't know, I, watching it, I'm not, I'm not even sure if he's read Last Order, but, it, look, it's not a very high bar, he's looking at you, Dragon Ball Evolution, but it is most definitely the best Western adaptation of any manga to date. Going back to the manga, right, well, fuck the movie, going back to the manga, before we wrap up for the day, there's one last thing I'd like to say. Here's the thing about Gunmu and my experience with Gunmu. As stated, it's my favorite work of fiction ever. It's like, it's my, like my favorite thing ever. As a writer, it's one of my biggest influences. I, I don't think that I've ever written anything outside of nonfiction or poems that doesn't take 
at least something from Gunmul. Here's the thing about it, though. I never talk about it. I never do. This is the thing that I love more than anything else that I never talk about. And beyond this podcast and maybe mentioning something here and there, I don't plan on really talking about Gunmore a lot. We all have that thing, right? We all have this thing that we quietly, quietly enjoy. The thing that we like that nobody talks about. We all have it. And Yukito Kishira's Gunmore is mine. What is nobody's, however, is Cassidy is alive. <laughs> Thank you for joining me this week, my friends. I love you. Next week doesn't have much in the way of plans, to be perfectly honest with you. I'll probably preview AEW's Revolution, maybe. I plan on reviewing it. I might preview it next week. I don't know. We'll see. And you'll see too. Have a great week. You lovely, lovely, lovely people. Mwah. Bye. We are dead. I don't know. What's this? Mm, I don't know. Um, I can't just expect that I'll fuck something up and just cut that fucking audio. Because I can't really... These clippers down. Why the fuck are they holding them? I can just do... I can do a samurai bit. I don't want to do samurai in this episode. I don't know. Fuck do I end this? Oh my god, that's recording. They <laughs> just heard me trying to find a way to end this fucking thing. You know what? Oh, I need to pick that up. I will just, since you're recording, I guess the podcast is over. Ha ha ha, that's the end. This is the whole ending segment. Off Floating Roach. Bye. Ha ha. See you next week. <laughs> oh my god. I need to find something better than this. I can't just settle for this. Can I? Can I? I will. I will. Okay, this is the end. This is the little end segment. I... <laughs> These get worse every week.